Good morning. It's good to see you guys. Uh, I want to welcome those of you who are visiting with us. And if you're here for the very first time, uh, there's a Connect card that uh, is attached to the program that you were given when you came in. I'd like to ask you, if you would, to fill that Connect card out. And then in just a few minutes, uh, later on, I guess, in the service, uh, we're going to have the ushers come around. And then you can just drop those in the offering bucket. We won't show up uh, at your doorstep unannounced or anything like that, but we would like to know that you are here with us, so please, please do uh, fill that out. I want to welcome to those uh, who are listening to us uh, through our podcast, uh, through, our, uh, through the internet, uh, however you're listening to it, we're just privileged to have you join us. We're in a series uh, from the last half of the Gospel of Mark that covers the final eight days of Jesus' life, and as Jesus travels toward Jerusalem, and an appointment that he has with a Roman cross, he's taking every opportunity during these last eight days to teach his disciples about the high cost of following him. And if you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd like for you to turn with me in it to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, and we'll begin reading in verse 17 in just a moment. Mark 10 and verse 17. Just a little context here as you're finding Mark 10, 17. Uh, Jesus has just come from a skirmish with the Pharisees over marriage and divorce. And immediately following that, he takes a little time to just kind of invest in the children of the community. And as he's leaving, he has an encounter with Richie Rich. Do you, is that a dated reference? Those of you in the 20s, 30s, do you know? Nod your head. Do you guys know Richie Rich? Okay, good, good, good. All right, great. Uh, he has this encounter with Richie Rich that's going to change the way, I think, that you think about money. I think there are three things that Jesus wants to tell us uh, this morning about wealth. The first has to do with the handicap of wealth. Second, I think he wants to point us to a greater wealth than just material wealth. And third, I think he wants us to consider the cross and how that affects our wealth. So first of all, the handicap of wealth. The second, a greater wealth. And then the third, the cross and wealth. And I want to start with the handicap of wealth in just a moment. But first, let's, let's just take a moment. I want to just, you know, this is a, money is a sensitive subject. And so before I talk about this this morning, I just want us to take a moment and just pray, like for you to bow your heads, just pray silently for a moment, ask the Lord to open your heart to hear what he has to say today. The other end of this culture of secrecy. And our Lord Jesus Christ, it is uh, way too uh, infrequently that we take the opportunity to just experience some silence. Lord, um, the subject of money is, it is a very sensitive subject. And so many bad experiences that people have had with churches and money and televangelists and money that, you know, it feels like that whatever we have to say is always... You know, it seems like it's always taken cynically, uh, that it sometimes comes across cynically. Lord, I, I pray that you would give us this morning uh, just, just the, the desire to hear what you have to say about it. Not what, not what Jeff Kincaid has to say about it, but, but what you have to say about it. And as we look into your word this morning, give us, give us ears to hear. Uh, give us eyes to see. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. Okay, we're going to talk about the handicap of wealth. I want to start reading in verse 17 of Mark chapter 10. Here we go. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. 
What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all of these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and he loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And at this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed. And they said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, uh, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Now, I just want to stop there for a moment. The passage tells us that Richie, uh, Rich here has great wealth, but that obscures a little bit what the Greek, tuck, what the Greek text tells us. It says that Richie was uh, exceedingly rich. Not just rich, not just very rich, but exceedingly rich. I don't know. Uh, you know, is this Warren Buffett rich? Is this Bill Gates rich? You know, comparatively speaking, of course, to the time and the local economy. We don't really know. All we know is that this guy was exceedingly rich. So, you know, perfectly tailored clothes, shoes made from Italian leather, a Ferrari around the corner. But here's the thing about this guy. I really want him to not be likable so that I can resent him for being exceedingly rich. But you can't because this guy is, he's endearingly impetuous and strikingly humble. Mark says that he runs up to Jesus and then he falls on his knees. So he's rich, but he's humble. And not just that. The gospel writer Luke tells us that he was also young and powerful, which means that not only is he not arrogant in the way that you might expect a young guy with a whole lot of wealth and success to be, but whatever the power is that he has, it, also, it hasn't gone to uh, his head. But wait, there's even more. He's not satisfied with just being young and rich and powerful. There is in him a real spiritual hunger. He comes to Jesus with this great question in verse 17. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, you might be tempted to read that to mean that he's concerned about life after death. And, of course, that that, that certainly is included in this question. But he's asking an existential question here about how he can experience meaning and, and fullness in this life as well as the next life to come. So he's, he's an authentic inquirer, and it's very impressive. So he's sincere. He's earnest. He's humble. He's open. He's honest. He has an obvious respect for Jesus. And in the rush of what must be a terribly busy life, he makes time to consider the meaning of life and to go to Jesus and to ask Jesus that very question. But wait, there is still more. Verse 19 tells us that he is a moral, young, rich guy. He says, teacher, I've kept all of these commandments since I was a boy. He's got a real sense of right and wrong. So he's got everything going for him. He's very gifted. He's nice. He's polite. He's rich. He's young. He's moral. He's thoughtful. 
Some of the other gospel, uh, uh, some of the other gospel writers tell us that that he was uh, that he was also a ruler, that he that that he had some kind of authority, some kind of power. But Jesus says that there is one very important thing that he lacks. He's one thing short of having everything. He's not a Cowboys fan. If he were, he would have everything. But he doesn't have that one thing. No, no, no. Here's what I think Jesus is saying that this rich young man is missing. He's missing the understanding that wealth blinds us of our true spiritual state. You see, this is one of the handicaps of of money and wealth. That it blinds us to our true spiritual state. Now, here's what I mean. Here is this guy with everything going for him in life, and yet he comes to Jesus inquiring, good teacher, he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And it's that word, do, that is the issue. And in a sense, the fact that he would use that word, what must I do, to inherit eternal life, that's perfectly understandable, isn't it? He's a young man. He's both powerful and rich. He's worked hard, this guy, for his success. He understands the importance of discipline. He knows that laziness gets you nowhere. He knows that you have to plan and prepare and think to succeed. No one's going to give it to you. Nothing is free in life. And so everything you get in this life is because of what you do. And so naturally, he goes to Jesus and he says, look, I've got great respect for you, Jesus. So tell me what to do and I'll do it. Let's just get this contract sorted out. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, here's the thing about this. It's really even though it, it, it seems to make perfect sense that a young, successful, rich guy would ask the question, it's kind of, it's an odd question really for this particular guy because any devout Jew would have known the answer to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, Jewish rabbis and scholars uh, debated and talked and preached and taught this all the time. Believe in God and obey the commands. That was what they believed was necessary to inherit eternal life. Believe in God and obey the command. And I wonder how many of you here think the very same thing. That in order to inherit eternal life, you have to believe and you have to obey to be saved. I wonder how many of you believe that. So when you stand before God at the end of your life or you're, you're lying on your deathbed, You'll point to all that you did and didn't do, and you'll say, God, let me in, because I'm a good person. I gave to charity. I gave blood. I went to church. I haven't been a murderer or a rapist or a dentist. I'm not like those people at all. I've been baptized. I've been confirmed. I, I, I read my Bible. I wonder if you think the same way that this young man did. What must I do? To inherit eternal life. You see, he's doing what comes just perfectly natural to him. His giftedness has always gotten him everything he wanted. And so he says, Jesus, just, just line up the rules or, or, or give me one big project. Maybe that's what I need to do. Give me that big project and, and I'll do it. But I want you to watch what Jesus tells this rich young ruler here. First, he tells him, he says, he says, you aren't as good as you think you are. 
Now watch, he comes to Jesus and he calls him good teacher, but Jesus responds in verse 18. He asks this question, why do you call me good? No one is good except, what, except God alone. You see what Jesus is doing here is he's challenging the shallowness and the glibness of this guy's sense of goodness. See, we think, he thought, he, he thought of goodness, we think of goodness relative to other people. Like, you know, we think, well, I'm better than him, I'm better than her. Um, because what most of us do is that we compare ourselves favorable, uh, favorably to those people uh, because we tend to compare ourselves, at least as it relates to goodness, to other people's weakest characteristics. But Jesus wanted this young man to understand that the standard for goodness isn't human goodness, but it's God's goodness. And to make that point, in verse 19, Jesus appeals to the Ten Commandments. Now now understand something. Uh, The Ten Commandments were broken into two parts. The first part could basically be summarized, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second part was really uh, about your neighbor, you know, how you treated your neighbor. So first part was sort of vertical, you know, love God. And then the, the second part was horizontal, love your neighbor, love people. And what Jesus is hoping as he goes through these commands, he's hoping that this young man will reflect here on his own failure to meet God's commandments regarding his neighbors. And not just, not just like the letter of the commandments, but the spirit of the commandments. But the young man doesn't do that. He says very naively, he says, teacher, and I want you to notice in your text that he just dropped the word good now because he already got nailed for that, so he's not going to do that again. So he says, teacher, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. This is a bad answer to give Jesus. All of the commandments I've kept since I was a boy. Are you serious, dude? Really? Come on. I mean, sure, you, you, you haven't committed murder physically, but in, in, in your heart, uh, haven't you ever been so mad at someone? I mean, I, like this is, I'm thinking about the young ruler like this. I'm thinking, you know, come on, dude. Have you, have you never really ever been so mad at someone that you wanted to kill them? Like when you're behind someone in the left lane on the Lloyd who's driving slow. Or okay, you haven't slept with anyone else's wife, but haven't you thought about it? Come on now, seriously. Haven't you ever lusted? For someone else's wife. And okay, Richie, you haven't stolen from people, I get that, but haven't you coveted what they have? Haven't you been jealous at someone else's success? Haven't you ever elevated yourself at someone else's expense on the way up the corporate ladder? And so on with the rest of the commandments. Had had he really understood the inner moral demands of the law of God, he would have been brought to a consciousness of his own moral bankruptcy. Even though he thinks he's good because he's kept the letter of the law, in reality, he's not even as good as he thinks he is. Now what's interesting is is this this verse that says that Jesus looks at him and, and he loved him. I don't know how you perceive Jesus. You might think that he would that Jesus would be angry at this guy for his, like his self-deceit. But Jesus isn't angry at him at all. He looks at this rich young ruler and he loves him. You know what I was thinking about? I was thinking maybe, maybe the reason that Jesus looks at him and, and at this rich young ruler and loves him is because Jesus is a rich young ruler himself. 
We'll get to that later in the, in the text. But Jesus himself is a rich, young. He's probably about 31, 32 years of age here. Ruler. He's a rich, young ruler himself. And so he looks at this man and he loves him. In all of Richie's bluster, in all of Richie's lack of self-awareness, in all of his naivete, Jesus loved him. In fact, here's the thing. He loved him enough to tell him exactly what he needed to hear. And what he needed to hear was, your trust in your wealth and your accomplishments is alienating you from God. See, it's part of what, it's part of what blinds us to our true uh, uh, spiritual state, this, this wealth. And he says, your trust in your wealth and your accomplishments, it's alienating you from God. When Jesus tells this young man to give away all of his wealth, he's not saying, well, you know, that will save him in, in any way, shape, or form. He's not saying that at all. What he wants this young man to see is that his wealth and, and his accomplishments have become his God. They're the source of his identity. They're the source of his security. They're the source of his sense of well-being. And Jesus knows that. He probably talks about it all the time. He probably talks about his Ferrari all the time. Probably talks about his job all the time. Probably talks about his success all the time. Probably talks about the amount of money that he has all the time. It's his security. It's his God. It's his identity. And Jesus knows it. And so he says to this young man, sell everything you have and give to the poor. Because I want you to have to trust me. That's it. I don't want you to trust your money. I don't want you to trust your accomplishments. I don't want you to trust your contacts. I don't want you to trust your bank account. I just want you to trust me. Can you do that? See, the very first commandment that God had given to the people of Israel was that they were not to put their trust in any other gods before him. And as much as Richie thinks he's kept all of the commandments, here's the thing. He hasn't even kept the first commandment let alone the last nine. Because this money, this wealth has become his God. And his face falls when he realizes that if he lost his money, he would lose his very self. He would lose his identity. He would lose his security. You see, for this young man, here's the way that I'd like to say this this morning. God was his boss, but not his savior. Like he was his boss, he told this man what to, this young man what to do. He always, the young man always did what his boss told him, at least he thought he did. But God wasn't his savior. His wealth, his money, that was his savior. And this is true for all of us. All, all of us have something that we rely on as our savior. It might be money. But it could also be something else. It might be a person. It might be a degree. It might be a skill set. It might be your family. I, I, I don't know who it is. But if you want eternal life, you're going to need Jesus as your Savior. And for that to happen, you're going to have to replace what you're already looking to as your Savior. It will have to become God that you love with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength, not whatever or whomever it is that you trust in. It's not enough that God be your boss. God has to be your Savior. But, but please understand, 
you know, we're talking about wealth today. As I said a moment ago, money and, and wealth has an unusual ability to deceive us about our true spiritual state. I want you to listen to what one commentator on this passage wrote, and I think it's going to shock some of you. He says this, he says, wealth is a human value with a voracious appetite which binds a person to earth. Jesus did not envy the rich, watch this, but rather pitied them. Well, just take stock of that for a moment. Is that how you view the rich? Jesus did not envy the rich, but rather pitied them. It put them under a terrible handicap in their relation to the kingdom of God, making it hard for them to submit to his rule and simple trust. Here's what's interesting. In this life, it always seems that all of the advantages and all of the best things in life go to those who are wealthy. Would you agree with me on that? But Jesus says exactly the opposite. He doesn't say the best things go to the people who are wealthy. He says wealth is actually a handicap. And that it binds us to our true, it blinds us to our true spiritual state. And our trust in it can alienate us uh, from God. Now I'd like to ask you, how much time do you spend thinking about wealth? How much time do you spend thinking about money? How much time do you spend thinking about success? Comparatively, how much time do you spend asking yourself, like this young man did, what's life all about? What's the meaning of this life? And how do I find meaning not only in this life, but how do I find life beyond this life? Where do you spend most of your time? Thinking about money or thinking about meaning? It's a handicap. Wealth, you know, and by the way, most of us in this room are wealthy. We're more wealthy than most of the world. And wealth, Jesus wants us to understand, is a handicap that blinds us to our true spiritual state and our trust in it, and our trust in our bank accounts. How many, man, I'll tell you what, you ever watch like a sporting event on a Sunday afternoon and watch how many times they come on with those programs about how, or those commercials about how much money you're going to need in retirement? It's depressing to me when I see those things. I'm like, I'm going to be living in a van down by the river compared to what these people say that I'm going to need. It's depressing. How much time do you spend thinking about that? See, our trust in it can alienate us from God. Okay, I want to move on. The second thing that Jesus wants to do is point us to a greater wealth. Now, I want you to skip down to verse 28 for a moment. We'll come back, but skip down to verse 28. And you'll notice that even the disciples, I mean, they're so blown away by Jesus' teaching about wealth. Peter speaks up and he says, we've left everything Uh, To follow you, Jesus. Now, that that seems innocent enough on the surface, but the gospel writer Matthew tells the very same story, and, and he adds that Peter also said this. He says, what will there be for us? In other words, we've left everything for you, Jesus. What's there gonna be for us? 
And, and see, it highlights that Peter's question is still, he's still thinking about earthly riches rather than spiritual riches. That's where his confidence still was. Unlike the rich young ruler, the disciples have sacrificed everything to follow Jesus. And Peter wants to know what material rewards they're going to receive for doing so. I think Peter still is thinking that Jesus is going to restore Israel's physical kingdom. And that, uh, and that Jesus will reward all of their sacrifices uh, uh, in terms of human wealth and power and influence. He's still bound to earth, you see. But watch Jesus' response. Uh, Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who's left, and watch the words that he uses here. No one who's left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children and fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Now watch, watch the words he uses again. Homes and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and fields along with persecution. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. What's he saying here? I want to summarize it this way, that there is a much greater wealth that you can only receive by following Jesus. Much greater wealth than any other kind of wealth that this world offers by following Jesus, no matter the cost to you. In other words, whatever you sacrifice, you're going to receive a hundred times over for following Jesus. Notice that everything a person might have to sacrifice to follow Jesus, I pointed it out, homes, families, fields, often as a result of persecutions that come from following Christ. They're all returned in kind in the last half of these verses, only multiplied by a hundred times. Like you're not going to miss it, is what Jesus is saying. You're going to get something back a hundred times more than whatever you had to sacrifice. And I want to ask you, did you have to give up your home or your family or your job to follow Christ? Have you had to do that? I, I will, you know, maybe not, but I will tell you, many people throughout history have had to. There might be people in this room who came from family backgrounds that Christianity was seen as the enemy and that if they became a Christian, that once they became a Christian, that it meant that they had to completely uh, leave the home. They were kicked out of the home. They were kicked out of the family. That happened. But on the other side, Jesus says that what they find is a home here in the local church among a family here in the local church that is not related merely biologically, but related by a supernatural connection with Christ that goes well beyond even the bond and the love of biological families. Now see, I, here's my bet. I bet most of you read that. When you hear what Jesus said, you know, about sacrifice, and you read all of this, you're like, wah, wah, that doesn't sound very great. I mean, that doesn't sound like much. Like, I would rather, if, if, I, if I sacrifice this much money, I'd rather receive 100 times over in money. But here's the thing that you have got to wrestle with. Jesus was the smartest man in all of human history. He's not usually given credit for that. But he was the smartest man in human history. Think about it. This man knew how to change the molecular structure of water into wine. This man could do things that that science today hasn't even begun to discover. The smartest man in the world says, you sacrifice something materially here on earth, you'll get a hundred times more in this present age and in the age to come. Now, you're going to have to wrestle with whether you're smarter than Jesus or not about that. He knows something you don't know. 
The interesting thing is that if you were to read on in chapter 10, you will notice that Jesus' mention of persecution here and sacrifice, having a sacrifice for the sake of Jesus, having a sacrifice for the sake of the gospel, you'll notice uh, next week when we get into the passage that, it, that this begins to create enormous fear, enormous fear among Ju- Jesus' followers. And as you might expect, the huge crowds that have been following Jesus, suddenly, what do you think happens to those crowds? Suddenly, they begin to thin out. You know why? Because trading material wealth for spiritual wealth to most of us just doesn't seem worth the trade-off. Because unfortunately, like Richie Rich here, our possessions possess most of us too. Which is why Jesus wants us to learn to think differently about wealth. Now I want to ask you, um, is your money, is it just money to you? Or is it your savior? Which is it? Is, it? is it just money to you? Or is it your savior? You know, some people don't have, some very wealthy people uh, don't struggle with this. I've known some very wealthy people that money to them was just money. It wasn't their savior. I've known some very poor people that money was more than just money to them, that it was their savior. So it's not, you know, it's not like an across-the-board kind of thing that all people with money view their money as their savior. Maybe you do, though. Here's two ways that you can determine that. Here are two questions that might help you think that through. First is this. Can you give large amounts of money away? Or do you get scared that you might have less You might have to learn to live with less than you're accustomed to. Can you give large amounts of money away? Could you do that? Here's the second question. Do you treat money as a scorecard? In other words, uh, if you see people who are doing better than you financially, does it get under your skin? Does it just like bug you? You're like, I I really have worked harder than that person. And look at all the money that they've made. Or, or, or um, I've, I've never had anything given to me all my, in, in all my life, and he or she had it given to them on a silver platter. Is that ever, you ever think those kinds of things? If you do, my guess is that money is your savior. It's not just money. It's your, it's your savior. No matter how much money you have, though money isn't intrinsically evil, it has incredible power to blind you to your true spiritual state and to keep you from God. That's that's what Jesus wants us to understand here. And he wants us to understand, too, that there is a wealth that is far greater than material wealth. And now the, the last thing that I want to look at, and I think Jesus wants to point us to, and that is the cross. And how it affects our view of wealth. Look again, if you would, at verse 27. The disciples disciples were even more amazed. And they said to each other, who then can be saved? Like the rich, if they can't be saved. See, in in their culture, uh, wealth was seen as uh, an outward demonstration of divine favor. In other words, God was rewarding you. 
for your piousness, for your religiosity, for, your, for, for being you know, obedient. That's how they saw it back then. Jesus looked at them and he said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Now, what's he saying? He's saying that if it were up to man to save himself, it would be impossible for any human being to do that. No matter how good we may think we are, no matter how good you may think you are this morning, all of us are sinners. We all trust in something or someone other than God. And you see, I think that we miss the point of this passage if we don't see ourselves in this rich young ruler. We're supposed to see ourselves here in him. And we're supposed to recognize that we are no more willing to sell everything we have and give to the poor than this young man was. If you really understand this passage, if you really get it, if you really get the sense of this passage, it will crush you and it will bring you to your needs Knees, and it will leave you asking, Lord, just like the disciples, how then can I have eternal life? And the answer to that question lies in how Jesus himself used wealth. As I said earlier, Jesus too was rich and young and powerful, just like this rich, young, powerful ruler. But where this young ruler could not and would not give away his wealth to make life more livable for the poor, Jesus would. I want you to understand that Jesus' wealth made this young ruler's wealth seem like a child's piggy bank full of pennies. I want you to understand that his rulership, his kingship, makes this young ruler's kingdom look like a schoolyard playground. I want you to understand that Jesus was the king for whom everything in heaven and earth was created. I want you to understand that Jesus is the the king by whose power everything in heaven and earth are held together and who is the king over the entire world and who one day every king will bow their knees to. Jesus owns it all. And yet Jesus went into deeper poverty than anyone has ever known as he hung on a Roman cross for poor people like you and me, poor in goodness, poor in goodness. The Apostle Paul once wrote this, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. He said, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Do you notice what happened there? Do you see what happened there in that verse? On the cross, Jesus becomes our substitute. Where we wouldn't have sacrificed our wealth, he did on the cross. And so we're saved, you see, not by our obedience, but by his. The operative word in 2 Corinthians 8, 9 is grace. Grace means that we're not saved by our own obedience, but by Jesus' obedience. Remember what Jesus said. With man, it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Now, I want you to hear me on this. Like if, you, if, you're, if you're tuning out right now because you're tired or whatever, I want you to, you're not more tired than I am, I promise you so. I've been standing up here preaching to you guys all this time. So I want you to just tune in. I want you to listen to this. Every religion in the world says this. They say exactly what this young man thought. They say, believe plus obey and you will be saved. That's what every religion in the world uh, says. 
What's the problem with that? The problem is that we can't obey enough to match God's goodness. In fact, we can't even get past the first commandment because we all trust in something uh, besides God. Only the gospel says this. Believe equals you are saved. Believe in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross and you are saved. Not believe and obey, not believe and be good, not believe and obey all the commandments. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then, as a result of being saved, you will find in yourself something changing that will make you want to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Which do you believe? Which are you? Which do you follow? Are you, are you religious or are you a follower of Jesus Christ? If you're here this morning and you're counting on your obedience to get you into heaven, I'm going to tell you something. You're lost. You're hopeless if that's what you're counting on. Which is why God sent his son Jesus Christ to die on a Roman cross for us. Because you could never be good enough on your own. Never, ever. And so the gospel is believe equals you're saved. And then as a result of being saved, you will find yourself, because of the presence of God that comes into your life, you will find yourself changing and wanting to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Once you understand that the gospel is about trusting in Jesus' goodness and his obedience, not yours, trusting in Jesus' sacrifice, not yours, then you'll begin to see that your own attitude toward money even will change. Not because you have to or you'll lose your salvation, but because you want to. You will find yourself wanting to use your money for good rather than just for yourself because you will look at Christ on the cross and how he gave his wealth away for you and you will want to do the same for him. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads with me and let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, in the room today, there are undoubtedly people here who are trusting in their wealth as their Savior. Would you speak to them about that this morning? Would you let them know that you love them just like, the, just like you love the rich young ruler? But in your love, in your love for them, you are willing to tell them the very uh, straightforward truth. That they're not as good as they think they are. And that their wealth is blinding them to their true spiritual condition before you. Or would you make us, City Church, make us a people that recognize that there's a greater wealth beyond material wealth. And that as a result of what you did for us, when you, when you became poor so that we could become rich, that as a result of that, that we would desire um, to use our wealth for the good of other people in the same way that you have done. Would you make us that kind of a church, that kind of a people? Lord, would you make us the kind of people too? That when people have had to make significant sacrifices to follow you, that when they become a part of this church, that they recognize that they became part of something much greater than anything else that they had to sacrifice, that they experience a love and a community here that is much greater even than their biological families. 
It's a high calling for your church. And Lord, we, we recognize that most churches never uh, come close to that. But Lord, would you make us, would you make us, would you, would you cause us to become that kind of place? Thank you for the gospel, Lord Jesus. Thank you that the gospel is about you and your performance, not mine. Your obedience, not mine. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen.